You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 23 with Dr. Jeffrey DeSarbo. Dr. DeSarbo is a physician, a psychiatrist, and the medical director of ED180, which is an eating disorder treatment program in Garden City, New York. It also happens to be one of the largest private treatment centers in the country. He is an IADEP certified supervisor and at this point has seen thousands of patients with eating disorders nationally and internationally and has lectured and consulted in over 22 countries. He's the host of the podcast Translating Ed and the producer of the YouTube series The Brain and Neurobiology of Eating Disorders. His book, which will hopefully be coming out in 2022, will be called Translating Ed, Demystifying the Neurobiology of Eating Disorders. So, as you've probably guessed, we will be talking about the bio-neurological aspects of eating disorders today. Dr. DeSarbo has so much knowledge, we can only cram so much into this one episode. So be sure to check out more of his resources after you've listened to this episode. I'm really excited to share this one with you. Let's get started. Dr. DeSarbo, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited for this conversation. We'll talk a lot about neurobiology and all that jazz. Maybe before we jump in, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background, who you are, and how did you get into this? Well, my background is uh, I took a little unconventional approach into medicine. Uh, My original degree was in banking and finance, and I had worked in the business world. And somewhere around the age of 28, I realized, you know, I wasn't really pursuing what I always wanted to do. I wanted to always be a doctor. But back in high school, my guidance counselors laughed at me and my parents said, we can't send you to medical school. So uh, so I kind of found my way into the business pathway. And then around uh, 19, I'd say 97 or so, I said, you know, I wasn't feeling fulfilled in in the business world. And I said, I always want to be a doctor. I I think I want to kind of go for it. And I went back to school, took my pre-med, fortunately did well enough to get into medical school. At the time, I had a wife and two children. So I kind of put all my eggs in one basket to go for this. And uh, after medical school, I uh, decided to go into psychiatry because I took a kind of a instant connection to it when I was in medical school doing my clinical rotations that I just wanted to really spend more time working with people. And so I did my residency at the NYU residency program through uh, North Shore University Hospital. At that hospital, the uh, residency director and assistant director were both experts in eating disorder treatment. In the early days of um, even eating disorder treatment. So I kind of had a little bit of mentorship from them no one wanted to pursue eating disorders because it's a very complicated process. But I, I, I took a liking to it because it does have its own language. I felt I could understand and relate to the people I was working with. So I took on those cases back then. And here I am today. 
So you're a psychiatrist. I am a psychiatrist. And again, kind of going into eating disorders is different too, because, you know, I always say eating disorders is kind of half psychiatry and half medical. So when you go through medical school and all the training you do in your residency in medicine and neurology and everything, you know, it's, it's it, at least for me, it felt good to be able to continue in a career direction where I still had to retain and continue to expand upon my medical knowledge in addition to the psychological and psychiatric aspects. Yes, which, like you said, makes it so complex and why this conversation is perhaps very important because usually we talk about, or well, I guess being a therapist, I talk about the psychological part and maybe underlying issues and behavioral interventions and not so much the neurobiology. If you had to describe what neurobiology is, what would you say it means? Oh, that's another complex question, depending (laughs) on which angle to take with it. Uh, The neurobiology, though, I would say, is kind of understanding the physiological, biological process, specifically with the neurological aspects of the brain and the central nervous system that seem to be responsible for our interpretation of existence and our day-to-day lives, how we think, how we process things on a neurological level, which if we really break it down is how our brain works is on electrochemical energy, you know, and all these different regions of the brain seem to be coordinated in kind of an orchestral arrangement that helps us function through the world. And it is that electrical chemical energy that is kind of the energy source that drives us on a day-to-day basis to experience our existence. So I guess that's a kind of a convoluted way to maybe say this is what neurobiology is about. But at least in my mind, that's how I'm thinking about it. So just to make sure I understand, there are the ways in which our brain works. I don't even know the words that you use. I don't remember. You just said them two seconds ago. But how our brain (laughs) looks on the inside is how it works, meaning we see it on the outside. We know our thoughts, basically, that's it. Or our impulses or urges. And you're saying that internally, there's a lot more than that. There's a lot more of that. And maybe there's a lot more that we don't understand than we do understand. You know, like I said, it's electrochemical energy that kind of like makes our brains work. That seems to be how our minds then work and function. But How does electrochemical energy actually manufacture a thought or a feeling we still don't understand? Well, I guess that's a million-dollar question. (laughs) It is. What does neurobiology look like? Are you talking about fMRIs and different scans and they look different? How, How do you test for it? How do you tell? Well, the fMRIs, the imaging techniques that we have, like fMRIs, uh, CAT scans, SPECT scans, those are essentially tools we have to kind of look at a brief moment in time of what our brain is doing and what parts are functioning and how they're functioning. We can measure how certain hormones or neurotransmitters are kind of functioning at the time, and we can study if there's any changes or defects or mutations in these types of neurotransmitters or neurohormones that kind of make one person a little bit different to another. We're we're able to, with neuroimaging, study 
how one part of the brain talks to another part of the brain and the sequencing of those different parts at the same time and at different times. And it has been interesting in the, in the field of eating disorders because it helps us see how one brain looks different than another brain. Do you have any understanding of the genetic predisposition, meaning even before a full-blown eating disorder is activated? Yeah, the general consensus now is there's definitely a genetic predisposition. And if you look across the board and you, if you want to, like I always say, if somebody asks me the question, why do I have an eating disorder? If we look at the data and the studies that have been done, and I always say Cynthia Bullock has done tremendous work on this topic. On average, I usually am telling my patients about 60% of the onset of an eating disorder may be related to genetic causes or kind of that genetic predisposition. Yeah, it's a little bit lower for binge eating disorder. That's probably around 40-45%. But with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, you're kind of set up for it. About 60% of it is set up for, okay? And then, of course, you have to have these other factors that kind of turn on those genetics, that whole concept of what we refer to as epigenetics. And epigenetics is really a term for a chemical reaction that takes place with our our DNA that turns on those genes. And those epigenetics tend to be those things we can often think of as triggers. You know, it can be things that are stressful in the environment, things that, you know, things, some things that we may have control over and some things that we don't have any control over. But generally speaking, a person can't develop an eating disorder if they're really not prone to it. That's why, you know, when we talk about, well, look what our society has placed this emphasis on thinness and appearance. Meanwhile, you know, we, we don't have an epidemic of anorexia nervosa, if anything, it's the opposite, you know? So it, it's those types of things that make a person prone to those things in our environment that turns on that DNA. So that's interesting. When we talk about nature versus nurture, it ends up all being in some way, shape or form genetic. Yes, very much so. And that's with not just eating disorders, that's with any medical or health condition. I always say, A person can be genetically prone to develop heart disease, and sometimes when they take the appropriate lifestyles and precautions, they may not develop it, while others who have strong genetics can take perfect care of their health and try to do everything right. But if their genetics say you're going to get heart disease, a person can still develop heart disease. And I think that's what we see with eating disorders. You know, oftentimes we can look for things in a person's history or life or things that may have triggered it, and we can find some of those things, whether it's trauma or certain types of things they were exposed to environmentally. And in other cases, had several patients where there's no identifiable trigger. And I think that's when I see those things, I'm always thinking about that person's genetics. Well, that seems chaotic in my mind. If there's no known reason, then it can be anything or completely out of their control to develop an eating disorder. To some extent, yes. Usually, If genetics are that strong, oftentimes there's that family history. Although I think as clinicians, when we're taking, we're asking for our patient's family history, we'll often say, any history of an eating disorder in your family? And the answer is often no. I always phrase that question, is there any history of an eating disorder that you're aware of in your family? Because as clinicians, we know, you know, people don't 
share that information. You know, uh, sisters don't share it when they have them going on. Mothers might may not share it or fathers may not share it with, with their children. And of course, when you go to more distant relatives, we don't know because you cannot look at a person and say they have an eating disorder. Yeah. And sometimes they themselves don't know. If you think about people who were a couple of generations up, they, there was no thing as like treatment or going to a therapist, getting diagnosed with an eating disorder. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. Right. And that's why I think a lot of the research that's been done scientifically and everything. And when we see the difference in brains and neurotransmitters in the past, it used to be looked at as, you know, that typical saying is, why don't you just eat more? Or, you know, you're just so focused on your appearance or, you know, it's looked at this thing that someone chooses to have. And that's always, you know, when, when working with new students in the field, it's always like, you got to stress that an eating disorder is not a choice. It's something that happens. And I don't think if you're genetically prone to something and you can't find triggers, it doesn't make it untreatable. Actually, I think by understanding the biology, that can help give patients more strength and control over what they're doing. I think what I'm basically saying, eating disorders are one of the riskiest types of behaviors to have because of the medical component associated with it. But I had a new patient yesterday, and I do have, and I think you may be aware of some videos on YouTube that talks about the neurobiology of eating disorders. And she herself had little insight into her eating disorder. So I referred her to check out those videos if I'm going to work with her. So first she understands how I think. But more importantly, it's to give her some insight of what her own brain is doing that when she may find it difficult to make certain type of changes, we as clinicians ask our patients to try to make, and she finds such resistance going on within herself. It isn't that she's not good enough. She's not trying hard enough. It's that there's a lot of biological processes that can be preventing him or her from doing what they need to do. So I do think like this aspect of understanding the neurobiology with eating disorders is very important to the treatment process and for the individual suffering for their recovery. And I'll, I'll link to your videos in the show notes. I watched a couple of them. They're really organized. And I like that they're organized by topic and very clear in terms of understanding the specifics. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned before that anorexia and bulimia are more our understanding is that they're more genetically prone or they have more of a genetic predisposition as opposed to maybe any of the other eating disorders, specifically binge eating disorder. In terms of all the news about social media and how the environment is affecting someone's development of an eating disorder, in what way would you say that that affects somebody to develop binge eating disorder? Is there no neurobiological predisposition? What's your understanding of that? No, there, there definitely is a biological predisposition for a binge eating disorder. And again, I, th I think the, it's somewhere around 44, 46%. When you take all the studies that have been done, and then they do what's called a meta-analysis to kind of average them all out and see what the majority studies. So there is, with binge eating disorder, this biological predisposition. However, there are other things, like with regards to behaviors, with binge eating and everything, when a person eats some, when they binge on what may be referred to as a palatable hypercaloric food, something they really enjoy eating, this can cause these maladaptive factors of neuroplasticity 
which means the ability for the brain to change itself. And it converts often the short-term eating drives that an individual can have into compulsive types of behaviors, which seem uncomfortable to the individual. And when they have these chronic consumptions of these types of foods with binging, and especially in binge eating qualities, it alters the brain function. So that can lead to, again, cognitive impairments with mental slowing, feeling fatigued physically, functional processing errors, dependence, unhealthy irrationalization, and it has an emotional fallout with it. While many people feel that they have this addictive type of eating pattern because they have addictive personality traits or maybe there's genetics towards it, sometimes it can be the other way around where something that short-term binge eating itself can lead to an, an addictive type of pattern by altering the brain's makeup. And the way that does that is when they, like scientists have studied on a neuron, there's at the end of the neuron, there's these arms and finger-like projections where one neuron talks to one to 10,000 other neurons. They're called dendrites. And these dendrites, um, what they found is the spine density of the dendrite itself was increased in regions of the brain, like your prefrontal cortex, which is a very important part of how we think and how we process our world. And it's different, again, compared to what they refer to as normal healthy controls or other types of eating disorders, because it's these dendrites in that prefrontal cortex and another region, which is called the nucleus accumbens, which is important for the brain's reward processing, addicting patterns. And these reasons themselves are associated with addictive behaviors. So what I was just saying, essentially, is sometimes you get brain changes based on how you're eating and what you're eating in a binge eating type of situation that alters the brain and then promotes the continued onset and worsening of something like binge eating disorder. So yeah, genetics can just play a role without even having that process take place. But in other people who may be less genetically prone to binge eating, starting a short-term a pattern like of binge eating can sometimes turn into a full-blown binge eating disorder. That is really interesting. How do you differentiate that, and this is just my absolutely no knowledge of addiction in the brain, how do you differentiate that from actual addiction neurobiologically? They have looked at different people with binge eating patterns. And for many people, the neurofiring pathways of addiction are quite similar to what they find in addictive pathways. And there's been some fantastic papers by um, Nora Volkow, who works in addiction medicine at the National Institutes of Mental Health Addiction Unit, and she's phenomenal. She's had some amazing papers. I often create, I create this model that I show a lot of people that show how, how the brain works with an addiction and in certain types of binge eating patterns where there's this one part where a brain is supposed to go from certain regions to this part of the brain where most of us it goes, where we can kind of weigh the consequences and the benefits and we don't engage in a behavior. But in people who are prone to addictive behaviors and people who are prone to binge eating, it doesn't go to that region of the brain there's the firing kind of goes off to motor planning cortex, which means oh, interesting. if the, a person without binge eating sort of thinks maybe I should go and have a, I really want a hot fudge Sunday and three other types of ice cream. 
most people, we're rationalizing that in a certain part of our brain saying, well, maybe I shouldn't do that right now. But they showed that in people with things like binge eating disorder and addicting, it goes to these motor, cort- motor planning cortex regions of our brain, which has us automatically doing it. And it's funny because a lot of times I know people take techniques like, well, before you engage in binge eating, why don't you write down what you should do or, or go journal for a while? But what I'm often showing in this model of what her paper talked about is the time it takes to go from thinking about doing it to the motor cording plan text is something like one one thousandth of a second. So you're, you're kind of saying to somebody, you know, go write this out in a one one thousandth of a second before you engage. It's not enough it. time, really. So that's why a lot of times we do have to have people who have severe binge eating. You have to shut down that pathway, whether that can be done through pharmacology, behaviorally, or somebody needs like a residential setting where they actually can't engage in the behaviors. Often the treatment ultimately comes rewiring that pathway. So it doesn't go to the one one thousandth of a second pathway. Yeah. It's so interesting because so many people talk about, especially on an initial consultation, I just need to rewire my brain and fix my eating disorder, which is basically exactly what you're saying. They, they do need to rewire their brain in some capacity. Yes. And again, it's with an eating disorder. It's just that the rewiring is very difficult. If you have an anxiety disorder, you have to rewire your brain, essentially, you know, um, and we do rewire our brain all the time to a certain extent, depending on your day goes and what you go out and you do and how you interpret your day went or the result of certain activities and decisions we make. We're constantly reformulating in our head different approaches of how we're going to go through life. You know, I often say, and many people have heard, if you want to be an expert at something, you need 10,000 hours of training in it. Oftentimes, when we work with our eating disorder patients, they have 10,000 plus hours of eating disorder thought processes. So they become experts. Unconsciously, they're experts in having eating disorder thought. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. We talked about binging, a bit of the neurobiology. I know that there's a world more about that, just pivoting ever so slightly to different behaviors. Can you talk a little bit about how what restriction looks like neurobiologically? Well... Neurobiologically, restriction in an eating disorder context essentially is starvation of the brain. And you're not giving, by restricting, not taking enough caloric intake, you're not taking in enough energy for the brain. You're not, you know, your food choices are compromised. Therefore, you're not usually getting what you need nutritionally in a sound balance of micro and macronutrients and everything else. So, Obviously, if you starve the brain, even in our minds, we can picture a starving brain. It's, it, it starts to just shrivel up in many ways. Brain volume, you know, you have your gray matter, which is really that outer cortex that we use so much that keeps us in connection with the outer world and thinking and processing. With, with things like severe anorexia, your restriction, you can have brain loss of that gray matter of 4 to 8%. And not 48, 428. That's significant um, though. Yeah, when you consider we have, you know, maybe 100, 120 billion brain cells, you know, like uh, 4% of that can be, you know, 10 billion brain cells, you know, uh, not functioning in their perfect manner. And in white matter, you know, that's the types of cells that 
kind of keeps our brain all tied together and connected. You can have two to 4%, which again, can be hundreds of millions and billions of brain cells and brain volume that's compromised because of restriction. So a restricting with anorexia nervosa is giving you a compromised brain. And depending on how long this has been going on and how severe the restriction is uh, or someone's body mass index, how low it is, it's hard to do certain types of work. It's hard to do cognitive behavioral therapy with someone that restricted. Their brain isn't usually functioning well. And depending on the part of the brain that's affected with an eating disorder, for instance, uh, it's very common studies have shown you can lose gray matter in the parietal lobe, which is on the side of the brain, the anterior cingular cortex, which is part of your emotional brain, and frontal lobe, like I said, that's your kind of higher functioning parts of your brain, that there's a direct correlation with the more brain volume a person may lose with the strength of a drive for thinness, which worsens, leads to more, more intense restriction, more weight loss, more brain compromise that takes place. So it's kind of spinning out of control. And the individual often going through this is completely unaware of how they are deteriorating. From my perspective, I always say, I don't usually need to know if a person has gained or lost weight. I can just tell from session to session little changes that are taking place in their cognitive processing and their presentation. So someone says to me, I lost two pounds this week. I'm calculating in my head how many hundreds of millions of neurons are now not functioning right. If someone thus says, I've restored two pounds, I'm calculating again how many neurons and brain functions are now getting better. And that's what I can just pick up just by talking to the individual. So that's what's kind of going on with restriction. And it's not just the cells themselves but in the brain, but with restriction, the body is affected. Every single system in the body gets affected. So if you have restriction in this low energy, your heartbeat starts to go down. That's the bradycardia we see in patients. Now, what bradycardia means is your heart's not pumping blood fast enough. It's not delivering oxygen to every part of your body. So you're weaker including the brain. So the brain is not only now compromised because of the brain volume loss, it's not getting oxygenation because wow. your lungs, your breathing is often shallower too. So you're not taking in enough oxygen for the blood when it gets to the lungs to pick up that oxygen. So you're really just kind of like going on a low power mode with your brain and your body. And that's what's taking place. And unfortunately, like I said, the individual that this is often happening to, they don't have the insight to realize this. Now, a lot of people, the one thing I always say, it seems in most people, the last area to ever be affected with something like anorexia and everything is intelligence, right? So that's why a lot of times people, they're slow to pick up on the effects of an eating disorder because they're like, well, I've lost this much weight and I'm really struggling in every aspect, but I'm getting straight A's in school. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, I always say it's that interesting thing. You can get straight A's in biochemistry and straight A's in physics, but if you put a small dish of food in front of someone, their head says, I'm going to gain 10 pounds. Like you just threw out all your chemistry and physics and everything. <laughs> you know? Is there a reason why intelligence is affected last or we don't know? Yeah, we don't really know. And it, it usually seems to be that's the case, but 
at the same time, um, there are cases where, you know, definitely the regions for intelligence can be affected and grades will drop in school and functioning at work deteriorate. But uh, I haven't come across any studies that say why those areas, you know. Yeah, I, I would guess, or just from seeing people, it's mostly because if their brain is slowing down, their body is slowing down, and they sort of preserve their energy for vital functions. And focusing on an exam maybe is not the most important thing. Well, see, I think if I was trying to map out and figure out why, we know that a common trait with things like anorexia nervosa is perfectionism, which is also hereditary. Um, I think studies oh, is show. It? Yeah, the studies on that. That'll be a lot of comfort to some people. Mom, it's all your fault. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, if it's hereditary, it's not anyone's fault. It's your, you know, you can't right, blame mom your can genetics. Mom can then blame mom's you know? mom. <laughs> so, so if you think about it, if you have that trait of perfectionism and, and you must get straight A's and try to appear perfect and everything else, the small amount of energy that you do have left following restriction may be diverted to the regions that keep that going. That's interesting. So we spoke about the binging a bit and then the restricting a bit. Can you speak to the purging a little bit, specifically self-induced vomiting? Because I think maybe I'll ask you to talk about the compulsive or the relationship with exercise in a separate question. Yeah, it, it takes its toll on its body. It's a violent act when self-induced vomiting. Oh, that's um, a great way to say it, yeah. So... I also think it's not technically classified as a form of self-harm, but it is. It's what a person is doing because it's a violent act. And patients suffered from multiple organic, physical, psychological, and social complications because of purging. So it's really taking its toll on the body, but purging alone comes out and affects many different aspects of life. Like you said, it can be self-induced vomiting, laxatives, diuretics, other medications. It's usually with bulimia nervosa. That's what people think of. But you can be associated with anorexia nervosa as well, which is very, makes anorexia nervosa, you know, it's already so dangerous. It makes it even more dangerous now. And again, we have something called purging disorder, which is kind of purging just on its own, not necessarily associated with the symptoms of bulimia or anorexia. And so you have these complicated medical manifestations. Again, it can affect every organ system in the body, kind of like what I was just explaining with the heart and how that affects how we think and everything, uh, and the brain and the central nervous system. And its findings physically can be just superficial skin, dental findings, esophageal findings, electrolyte or abnormalities, and cardiac arrhythmias. And of course, those can be very dangerous and often lead to death. You know, that's why sometimes people don't understand that just because you don't have anorexia nervosa, and if you're gauging and purging, there's a tremendous amount of deaths that do happen through the purging behaviors often caused by electrolyte abnormalities, and often those electrolyte abnormalities can affect cardiac functioning. But, you know, when we talk about changes with electrolyte imbalances, you know, purging, what it does is it leads to this loss of water and electrolytes from the body, like sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, bicarbonates, chloride, all things that we need for normal body functions. And purging often changes and causes a complete imbalance of these electrolytes. So things like, especially when we talk about things like uh, sodium and potassium, we get these low levels of sodium and low levels of potassium. Well, 
your body slows down and it slows down because neurons with low potassium and sodium require more stimulation to fire off and talk to each other it's called an action potential and they can't fire these action potentials so that they talk to one another as rapidly as before that's why our thinking will slow down or i should say people suffering their thinking slows down they feel weak in the muscles as well because that's slowing down and confusion starts you know it's often thought of as like brain fog you know <laughs> essentially with purging we're talking about changes in electrolyte balances that then there's a fallout to it okay and that's because it's affecting neurons communicating with each other and again those neurons are in our brain they're in our muscle tissues they're in our every organ and so everything can be affected from that purging pretty extensive what do you say to the person who's like don't worry i'm taking potassium yeah well <laughs> i mean look if somebody has low potassium and they're under a doctor's care it's going to be monitored so they can take potassium if they take too much potassium or if they if you ever correct a low potassium or a low sodium too quickly you can have significant problems you can have a swelling in the brain stem which can put people in coma something called locked in syndrome where you're kind of in a coma consciously aware of everything going in around you and i am i have seen that in two cases with eating disorders not with my patients but i have seen this and that can be long term and it's to me one of the scariest things somebody could ever go through so i always say when somebody says don't worry i just got my lab work and my labs look okay or my EKG looks okay. That is a picture in time at that moment. And a lot of physicians, if they're not really informed of the eating disorder and understand the nature, they often may reinforce that with their patients. You look good. Your labs are good. Your EKG is good. But if they don't understand the extent or the effects of behaviors like purging and severe restriction and electrolyte balance, and they don't ask, say, we got to repeat these labs next week or your EKG every week or so. That's where things can go wrong. With an eating disorder, and of course, where someone is and their extent of severity uh, dictates how closely they need to be followed. So I love seeing when labs are in order and an EKG looks good. I'd much prefer that than not see that. But it doesn't give me this prolonged security that tomorrow based on what you're telling me your behaviors may be, it's going to look the same as it does today. And that's the scary part of it all. So yeah, someone saying, don't worry, I'm on this. Or it's, it's Most people with an eating disorder, they do have a feeling of invincibility. It's never killed me yet. It's never caught. But I, you know, and then I have to always remind them, whenever I meet someone who had their first heart attack, they always used to say, I never had a heart attack until it happened, you know? Exactly. You're invincible until you are not. And then it is too late. What about compulsive exercise? Does that have a neurobiological component? Uh, the studies vary uh, on the effects of that. See, one of the things is when we're talking with an eating disorder and we're talking compulsive exercise, it's kind of like when we talk about an individual, we say they have an eating disorder and someone says, oh, I have an eating disorder. But no, they may have disordered eating. People may have excessive exercise compulsive exercise that becomes excessive is where you can have fallout because 
when somebody feels, and, and this is the typical presentation, some of compulsive exercises, I must exercise every single day for three hours or something like that. And it doesn't have to be that much or that often, but there's like, if something happens or I have an event to go to, I can't do it. If I miss a day where I don't do it, it wreaks havoc in my anxiety and my thoughts, or I compensate in other manners. There's a stress factor that goes with it. Now, when you're having stress factors, certain regions of the brain, like the hippocampus get affected. Our body produces increased amounts of cortisol, which is essentially neurotoxic to our central nervous system and to the neurons and everything. Under any extreme exposures of stress, or even like with PTSD, you'll see the body usually produces a substance called brain-derived neurotropic factor. This is a healthy type of protein that we produce that usually protects those neuron connections that I talked about can often be affected with an eating disorder. And when you have stress, the body stops producing this brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. And so you start to get, again, kind of a withering away of some of those dendrite connections, the communications of the cells and the nervous system. On the other hand, for most people, getting exercise helps us with that stuff, okay? Which is kind of that common thing with eating in general and with other things in life. You know, it's, it's being in the gray area. It's not being on one extreme or the other extreme with food, with exercise, with alcohol, with anything, you know? Extreme compulsive exercise increases our stress hormones, which then has this deleterious effect our cells, our neurons, and how our brain talks to each other. Yeah. So I also, what I'm gathering, what you're saying is this is one way to look at it. And it's so much more complex, especially when we talk about individuals' relationship with exercise, where they fall on the spectrum and what's going on for them in their life. And so, you know, particularly with this piece, we have to take individual by individual. Exactly. Yeah. What about, uh, I asked this question in light of a lot of news about social media and body dissatisfaction. What about the the poor body image that seems to come with basically all eating disorders that are, well, not all, but most of them. Does this play into the neurobiology in any way, or it's sort of interwoven in the behaviors? What have you seen with the body dissatisfaction piece? Right. And it's good because it's you use the word body dissatisfaction because a lot of people used to say body dysmorphic. It's not body dysmorphic if it's related to the eating disorder, okay? But most people with an eating disorder have this body dissatisfaction. And I think of it in two terms. What is somebody's body image distortion? In other words, when they look in the mirror, what do they see? How close to reality is that? And then the second factor, which may be more important, is what is someone's level of body image distress. Some people may actually have high levels of body image distortion, but they can cope fairly well. And of course, that's the process in recovery is to get them to just be able to cope in the beginning. But if somebody has even small images of body distortion, but they have very high levels of body image distress, that's the component that often makes treatment 10 times more difficult than somebody who doesn't have that aspect. And the studies now that when you're looking at neurobiology and the neuroimaging, there are multiple different studies that show and account for the potential findings of what's going on in these brains compared to other people's brains. Like there's one study that shows there's an increased blood flow to the temporal lobes of the brain and that this blood flow causes this body image distortion, okay? It's different from what you see in other types of brains, except it's similar to what 
people who have certain types of delusional disorder see. It's almost, yeah, so it's like what I've always taken from this is trying to help my patients understand and helping families understand that if somebody who is severely underweight looks in the mirror and as one person said, I look like Henry Hippo, that that's what they're saying. They're actually seeing that. They're not exaggerating what they see. This is how they're experiencing the feeling in their bodies as well. And that there are these biological correlates that studies have shown explain why this goes on. So you oftentimes like the theory and treatment is we need to normalize the brain's blood flow for something like this study here to change some of the biological findings that you see with people who suffer from this body image distress. And that doesn't mean just, okay, medications or things like that. That is sometimes can involve, you know, a normalization of eating patterns, a restoration of their macro and micronutrients and vitamins and everything they need so their brain can repair itself. I define eating disorder recovery as a restoration of the brain and central nervous system to a state that has normal thought processes. But it's like recovery, in other words, you have to kind of repair and restore the brain and central nervous system. That's what recovery is. It's not a number on a scale. There's this typical question. I always like sharing it so more and more people will ask it. I ask my patients, what percentage of your free thoughts when you're not busy actively doing something, do you spend thinking about or worrying about food, weight, body image, calories, exercise? Now, in an acute situation with an eating disorder, patients will often say 90, 100, 110%. In recovery, I like to monitor that. They'll say, well, it's down to 90, it's down to 80, it's down to 70. You know, I always feel the baseline in someone without an eating disorder is 5 to 15%. So if someone somewhere is answering that question, Like I had a patient recently, I had to do a consultation to assess, do they have an eating disorder? And their response to that question was a very specific 46%. (laughs) I wonder how they come up with that number. (laughs) And based on what they were doing before, where they are now, my thing is you have currently a subclinical, you have a lot of red flags, you're headed in that direction. But when you ask that question, the response a person gives, it's now 70% is probably the best question we ask that can measure the response of the neurobiological process that their treatment is having. So again, any, any clinician out there or any patient that may hear this, just ask yourself that question or ask your patients that question. What percentage of your free thoughts when you're not busy doing something active do you spend thinking about or worrying about food, weight, body image, exercise, purging, And you're going to have a really good measure of where a person stands if they can give you an honest answer. That's a really good question. Taking all this information, and I know that this is a really large question, so sort of uh, if you're able to break it down into a simple answer, how does this affect how we pursue recovery or treatment? Because we're talking about so many different neurobiological changes when someone engages in all these behaviors. And like you said, it's not about just journaling your behaviors away. So how do you start to rewire your brain? Okay. I don't think I've given you a simple answer for anything yet, but (laughs) (laughs) certainly it's hard to do this. I mean, the first thing is 
you have to study what you're going through. And that's why I think having a full understanding of neurobiology, therapeutic aspects of treatment, nutritional aspects of treatment, you have to know not just what you need to do, not just why you need to do it. You have to know the purpose of what you're trying to do. However, this depends where a person is in their treatment and recovery, because we know recovery is difficult. Recovery is hard. If someone comes in my office right from the day one and they don't have much experience, I I tell them, if you want recovery from an eating disorder, it's going to be a very difficult, painful process. We might as well admit to that right away. Our job as clinicians is to help you cope with the difficult pain of going through the recovery process. Now, it's always worth it. I've never had a patient tell me in the end it wasn't worth it. But it's confronting sometimes your biggest fears, which can be, again, fear of failure, fear of being alone, but usually sometimes it's just fear of eating a meal. Again, part of recovery is you have to put together a team that you trust, that you will always be honest with. You have to educate yourself. Don't be afraid of failing. If I have to ask my patients to try doing X or Y or Z and they can't do it, okay, then we'll just talk about it next time. You know, We'll figure out a way. I always say there's a combination to everybody and some locks are harder to pick than others, but I'm not one that necessarily subscribes to the severe and enduring eating disorder concept. You know, I don't think I've ever felt this case is hopeless or anything. Some cases are more tricky. And it's interesting because I, I think I mentioned to you, Rachel, before I started, I saw your website and you says, Hey, sometimes I have to do things that, uh, you know, maybe are out of the box and stuff. And I'm a hundred percent on board with that. You know, there is no cookie cutter approach to treatment. You try to use some evidence-based practices. We try to do what has shown to be oftentimes the most effective approach But then there are times that those approaches just haven't worked and we do have to go out of the box for those things. So I I think the biggest thing a person has to have for recovery is the willingness to remain in treatment for their reasons and not someone else's. Yeah, I often say that very similar idea in that your recovery is mostly reliant on your level of motivation. And it doesn't always have to be high, but it has to be somewhere there in order for it to happen you know uh, one of one of my trainees is my son who's a therapist and early on you know he's been like i don't know this person doesn't want recovery what do i do do i keep seeing them what do i do and i'm like do they want to keep seeing you and he's like yeah but i don't know why because they're not i go (laughs) specifically i always think of this one patient i had early on who for three years I had to have her sign a piece of paper that I'm kind of treating her against medical advice because she absolutely refused to go to res anywhere, but I couldn't abandon her, I felt. And for three years, she still came to see me twice a week without, then one day it happened. And then she had her life, which changed dramatically. She, you know, she, she got married, she has kids, she has, you know, and again, I worry that certain people would have given up on somebody like that. So as long as somebody remains like that, and if they're just under medical care and they're dedicated to working with their team, especially their, their therapist, to just keep their head above their water is how I, I even expressed it to myself. Sometimes our job is to just keep them alive until it, we can figure out and pick that next combination on the lock. 
Yeah. Well, one last question before I let you go. In terms of recovery brain, if somebody has been engaging in behaviors for years and their brain looks exactly the way that you described, is it possible to reverse that? Um, are, are you saying can somebody be 100% recovered? Well, specifically neurobiologically. Oh, uh, yes. There's a lot of factors. You know, if somebody has an eating disorder that starts at a very early age, sometimes there appear to be things that don't go 100% back to baseline. But that doesn't mean the eating disorder is necessarily there. Some things may be cardiac, so they have to monitor cardiac functioning. Or, or maybe there is something that underlied it, well, that was underlying, like, let's say, obsessive compulsive disorder or an anxiety or depression that you continue with. But what I always want to say to, to people who are in therapy is I'm always telling someone there are people who go to therapy because something's going on or there's a crisis. Then there are people who go to therapy when everything in life is perfect. And I think a therapist to me is like a mental coach. And I always say Serena Williams has a tennis coach. Tiger Woods had a golf coach. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good you are. They still have coaches. And that's what keeps them on track and online. So when someone's doing better with an eating disorder or if they're recently recovered, my best advice is if you felt you're working with someone who helped you get there, then they'll help you get to other places in life as well. I love that. I mean, that's definitely a therapy plug. So I'll take it. <laughs> Before I let you go, first of all, thank you so much for your time, for your knowledge. I think this was really, really helpful. So thank you. Where can our listeners find you? Like my home address or? Yeah. And your cell phone number <laughs> and your bank account number. <laughs> well, of, of course, my office is in Garden City, New York. I am extraordinarily busy. Uh, but like I, I did mention, uh, if people are interested in this type of information with neurobiology, I had a patient, you know, when COVID started, asked me to throw up some videos because I used to do a lot of family sessions and families didn't have access. So I made these 15 videos, I call it the Neuro Series on eating disorders. So if you just go to YouTube, you type in Jeffrey DeSarbo eating disorders, I'm sure you're going to find those videos and hopefully you'll like that. My website is drdesarbo.com or ed180.com. I have a podcast, which is kind of still in the initial phases itself, which is Translating Ed, where we try to talk about some of the newer studies that come out and translate those studies so people can continue to follow what may be new in the neurobiology of eating disorder treatment. So places like that. Yeah. Well, I'll link to all of those in the show notes so people can find you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.